On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Leadis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you too, The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymikeleadis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Winwood, the Cramps, U2, etc, etc. We also have some great stories from some industry insiders. Right, intro done, on with the show. Welcome to the bit where we plunder the archives and dig deep and find interviews from way back then. Ray Davis, or should I say Sir Raymond Davis, was the lead singer and main songwriter in the quintessential English pop band The Kinks. They were also, most likely, the pioneers in what would soon become Britpop. He had a number one record by the time he was 19 and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. Since the band called it a day, he's acted, directed and produced shows. It was there and then, in 1994, that I caught up with him around the release of X-Ray, what he himself describes as his unauthorised autobiography. So, sit back, relax, and listen to Ray Davis. This unauthorised autobiography, which uh, came out, in fact, on Viking last week, um, is it, in fact, the first book you've done? Well, yes. It's the first long thing I've written. I've written scripts, things like that, but X-Ray is the first... No, his first attempt at writing a book. How long very did... interesting, very interesting process. It's got, it's got like, I mean, I've seen some great reviews, but I've seen some reviews from quite obviously written by people who don't understand it. Briefly, what it, what's it about? It's quite a different type of autobiography, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sorry about the people that don't understand it, because it's written in plain English. So, um, it's... I didn't want to write an autobiography that was just, you know, I was born in such and such a day and all that. It's just boring stuff. I just wanted to have a, a, a creative insight into myself because yes i know what i've done i've made lots of records with the kinks and we've had a very sort of colorful history very interesting band and it wasn't really until i finished it i realized how how strange our career had been but when i started the book i tried to view it from from a perspective of a young 19 year old uh, cub journalist coming in to interview me say, uh, as if I were 70, 75 years old, a grumpy old man in a recording studio. And that way I could have an insight into myself. I, I couldn't really uh, examine myself and appraise myself because, you know, I exist now. But in the book, I, I, I turn into this character, R.D. And I think most people pick up an autobiography and they think, oh, yes, this is a... a events as they happened and we remember it and there's a lot of that but there's also this undercurrent throughout the book about my sub my, what i call the sub world the subconscious world of rd my character 
And I talk about me as if I'm a sort of different person in the book, which I found to be an interesting way into myself. I would imagine the fact that it's some 500 pages long means that by the time you've got into it, you get well into it, and it just continues very easily, doesn't yes, it? it's 420, something like that. It's um, an interesting book, I think, to read as a whole. It's... it's uh, but people that have read it, they read it once and they say, oh, I'll go back and read it again. It leaves you with with a lot to think about and you pick up on things second time round. So but like I say, I haven't read it all, but I intend to read it all. But I've just been a slow reader. I didn't have a chance to read it all before you arrived. Um, but in saying that, I mean, it, it looks on the surface that it's been written to appeal to just more than Kinks fans. I mean, Kinks fans would buy a Ray Davis book, wouldn't they? Out of the fact that they're probably completists anyway. But over and above that, I would imagine you're trying to attract people that... There's, there's certain mystique behind it. Well, there, it's not just mystique. I think most we're fairly well documented in history. You know, the records are well known, the famous sort of band. Uh, but I think, as I was saying earlier, there's part of me, there's a lot that makes me as a person and motivated me to become a member of the band and how I fell into it. And um, as I said, it's this sub-world, this other world that exists. It's part of your, part of a, a creative person's uh, psychology, the way they write, their background, their family. There's a lot about my family in it. And there's a lot about the characters we met on tour. Because I often found that, uh, in, you know, in the 60s where it starts with the band, uh, a lot of the characters surrounding us were more interesting than us. Because we were more concerned, you know, when After You Really Got Me came out, I was more concerned with writing songs, and I was like like a swat at home, writing single after single. Was, was I mean, the fact that it, it is, what, 30 years virtually mm. that, you know, the book's come out, I mean, did you have to wait that long to see that, that the book had any significance? Lots of people would have done a book like this a lot earlier, I suppose, wouldn't they? Purely for financial reasons, maybe. Well, yeah, I never intended to write a book. It's just that going back, I think you were going to ask me when I started how long it took to write. It didn't take that long, but I was at first asked to write this book at the end of 1988. And uh, I was living in Ireland at the time after a long tour. I'd been quite sick. And it was touch and go whether I'd continue with the band or because I, I was in quite ill health. So I thought it would be interesting to try and write it as a kind of a, a, a to recuperate and do something rather because I couldn't tour for two or three months. Um, but I, I actually really got into it at the end of last year. So it was quite therapeutical at the time to, to sort of start doing this yeah. rather than going tucking yourself away and writing songs which would have been made more effort. Yeah, but I, I made the, the I made the definite decision to sit down and, and say this this book will be in this style. And this is my method I'm using, using the young boy interviewer, who is me. There's a lot of me in him as well. It's me, because I was 19 year old, years old when You Really Got Me was number one, uh, I, <clears throat> I thought it'd be a good a point to start with this boy. So it's me meeting me. So it's sense. chronological through the so ages. That's maybe why a lot of people don't understand it. <laughs> but it's a very, it, it surprises me because uh, the, the people that I have met that have read it and the signing today, it was, was sensational. You know, the, the, the people are varied. You have scientists coming, you have old fans coming, you have new fans coming, you have people that work in shops, housewives, and they all have their, it's some, I think there's something in it. I don't want to be all things to all men. I think because it's about a band that's known, has a history, that, that, that singles, the singles that people remember, this, it has a single memory in people's minds. And I think this book 
adds a little bit of the background to those songs. Mm. I mean, it sounds quite modest the way you, the way you talk about it. I mean, you know, you should have a book, really, shouldn't you? And I mean, I suppose, like, you know, the fact is that there will be people out there that have got Kinks records whose parents have got Kinks records. So the curiosity factor means that you can probably appeal to over thirty years to two, three generations, which isn't such a bad thing, anyway. It's not a bad thing, but it's not. It, I didn't really think about that when I was writing it, and I didn't make, I didn't target an audience. I think I've never tried to do that with. Even when we made records, I've never tried to, you know, from a band like the Kinks that had All Day and All of the Night, which many people say is the first heavy metal record, the same band a year or so later made Waterloo Sunset, which is a ballad that most people you know, really regard as their f- favourite Kinks song. You've been listening to the Way Back Then podcast with me, Tony Michaelidis. Today's programme features Ray Davis from the Kinks. That's an interesting thing about the band, isn't it? The fact that you've got to be sort of the definitive English pop group mm. that, you know, like lyrically and, and the whole thing about the Kinks, they were separate from the rest. And, and like you say, you've been incredibly successful as a songwriter. Um, but the fact is, yeah, if you go back to 64, I mean, it, it was, you say heavy metal, and heavy metal's like a, a loose term. I suppose it was like the definitive riffs yes. in the same way that, you know, maybe like Free and people mm. years on had like, I mean, there's nothing complicated about All Right Now and things. It's simply the simple. Well, things well, I do disagree, not disagree with you, but all right now, it's not a complicated sounding record, but it's minimalist. Yeah. And that takes a lot of, it's a lot of thought, a lot of work to do that. You just heard Ray Davis in part one of our Way Back Then interview. Part two in weeks to come. Way Back Then is part of Moments That Rock, where we dig deep into the archives, dust them down and deliver them. More archive interviews next week. If you're a regular listener to this podcast of Moments That Rock, then you realise that there's an abundance of stories. We have stories from artists, we have stories from behind-the-scenes people, and we're including stories from me. I've got a bunch of stories, and uh, I have a book, which uh, is about to be rewritten, actually. So as soon as it's finished, I'll let you know. But there's lots of stories in that. But I'll just recount a couple for you over this podcast and future podcasts and things. I did think of calling this section, you did what? But then I thought I might call it Tone Alone. So it's short little stabs between other things. Here's a story about um, working with Sting back in the uh, early 80s, around the Synchronicity or Ghost in the Machines tour. Um, The police were arguably the biggest band in the world around then, just before U2 broke, actually. And... um, I enjoyed working with them a lot. Of course, everybody wanted the, the police and Sting especially on everything. There was a show in Manchester called Cheggers Place Pop, which was a kind of kids' shows that was on 4.45. Good ratings, so well worth doing. Uh, at the time, Sting had broken his arm or sprained it or something. He had it in a sling anyway. And he was um, filming June. So he had very limited time. So what happened was the band flew up early. I say the band, the other two, to do like a, a run-through. Um, it wasn't live, it was kind of lip-syncing and everything. But you can't do it without your lead singer, because he's the one who's lip-syncing. Um, I think they might have been doing Every Breath You Take, if I'm not mistaken. So the band came up and were there early, and my job was to go and pick Sting up and uh, bring him into the studio. I had a very, very short window. He flew up on um, a plane from London, and we had to get him back literally a couple of hours later. So I was working in the office and met the guys, left them to it, and then shot down 
at a ridiculous speed to go and pick him up. I was running late. So I went down this road called Princess Parkway to Manchester Airport, um, straight into the multi-storey car park, whizzed up to where I could find a car parking space, slammed the brakes on, leapt out, shut the door, into the elevator and down. Just as I got out of the elevator and I was walking along the concourse, I noticed the flight had arrived. So I went to the gate and within minutes everybody was disembarking. And there he was, Mr Sting himself. Walked over, hi, how are you doing, Tom? Blah, blah, blah. We started chatting and we walked towards the elevator to get the car to go into the TV station. So we walk in, doors open, press the button, doors shut. He looks at me and says, where are you parked? Huh? There was a pause. Oh my God, I couldn't remember where I'd left my car. (laughs) What happened then was hilarious. So I had Sting on, I think it was kind of like level five and I was on level six and I was shouting down to him, have you found it? And he said, no, Tony. I said, well, you go down one and I'll go up one and we'll have a look. And um, it was hilarious because obviously Sting was incredibly famous and I was just wondering if you were a businessman or something and you arrived back to collect your car and go back to your family. Um, and you saw, like, this incredibly famous person wandering around with his arm in a sling looking for a vehicle. Fancy taking that home and telling your wife. <laughs> anyway, it's a little ditty and a daft story. Uh, it's true and it's insane. But I got away with a, a bunch of wondrous things. We eventually found the car. We weren't too late. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. 
And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. And when I got him back to drop him off and take him to the gate, I remembered what level I'd left my car on. There's a whole bunch of rock stars who work behind the scenes and they have some great stories. Insider Insights takes you inside their world for their stories and their rock star moments. And on today's Insider Insights, a gentleman by the name of Dave Robinson. Dave's a bit of a legend in the music industry. He's been around for forever. He uh, has some incredible stories, a great raconteur. He worked with Hendrix in the 60s. In the 70s, he started pub rock. And he goes on to talk about that in the pieces we've got. Spread over probably three separate Moments That Rock programs. Dave ran Stiff Records, signed Elvis Costello, Ian Jury, Madness, etc., etc. Um, he moved um, over to Run Island when they kind of uh, bought Stiff for him. And he came on board to Run Island Records in 1984. It was there only a couple of years, two, maybe three years. Uh, but at that time, it was Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Bob Marley and Legend album, which still remains the biggest reggae, uh, reggae album of all time. And of course, The Unforgettable Fire by U2. So in that year, Dave gave Ireland its most successful year. He's done other things. He's still around and about. And like I say, I could listen to him forever. So what I've done is I've split his uh, interview. Well, not really an interview. It's just asking Dave a few questions and letting him roll with it. And um, we'll spread it out over the next few weeks. But this is Dave Robinson and part one of Insider Insights. You were a kid growing up in Ireland. How did you get into the... Uh, well, it was live music first, wasn't it? So the entertainment... Well, I, was a, I was a photographer. That's what I was deciding to be. And I got a job as a photographer. I mean, I wasn't doing anything too marvellous at the time. Weddings, uh, kids, you know, putting myself about in pubs. 
uh, I was starting to do a bit of, you know, good photography with magazines. I had a friend in a band who had no money and who needed some photographs. And it's the story of my life. That band in Ireland that I photographed, a group called The People, not a great name, but Henry McCulloch was the lead guitar player and Chrissy Stewart, God rest him, who's just departed to the great rock and roll tour, was the bass player. And, uh, you know, I started doing, I, I noticed that they weren't very clever with the management kind of bit. So I did a bit of management for them, opened a club in Dublin to, and put them on. And the photography kind of waned at that point. And, um, but after a year or 18 months, Ireland didn't have a very big kind of pop circuit. I mean, they had show bands. You, you'll know about those, a seven piece, eight piece brass section playing a lot of country and charts material. Very good, some of them very good. So I did a lot of photography for them and there wasn't a lot for young four-piece bands. There wasn't a lot. So I decided that I would get back out of the four-piece bands business and back into photography. So I went to London to uh, get two or three jobs. In those days, you could do three, three shifts <laughs> and sleep never and earn quite a lot of money very quickly. I had three different names, so uh, it was very useful. And during that period, uh, the band rolled up from Ireland. They decided to follow me. They didn't take no for an answer. And so uh, I got them a few shows and they got me thrown out of my flat by being really noisy and, my, you know, sleeping on my floor. I remember being very irritated by that. Anyway, on the third gig, a gentleman with round glasses and a little moustache said uh, at four o'clock in the morning when they played, he said to me, I would talk to me before you do anything else. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So who are you? And he said, well, I'm Jimi Hendrix's manager. And I thought, yeah, a likely story. You know, what else is new? Luckily, the promoter, a guy called Joe Boyd, passed by at that point and said, that's Mike Jeffries. And I said, oh, well, very sorry, Mike. Yeah, I'm all ears. He had a club in Mallorca. He had three clubs in Mallorca. And he wanted a band for Mallorca, an Irish band. And that was critical because uh, Britain and Spain were fighting over Gibraltar yet again and all English uh, work permits were cancelled. So his clubs had no groups. And so he wanted an Irish band. But the fact he was Jimi Hendrix's manager was very appealing also. We went to Mallorca. We had an incredibly good three months in Mallorca. And uh, during that period, Chaz Chandler, who was his partner, came out the, the beat, the Animals bass player. And he quite liked the band and he, you know, said, oh, this is pretty good. You know, Henry McCulloch was always a great guitar player and a, a singer called Ernie Graham, who of course is gone as well, was, was good. Very Van Morrison influence. They were from Belfast. So I had to explain to them that in order to get this gig in Mallorca, they had to get Irish passports as in the Republic of Ireland. And they didn't want to do it. They said they'd be killed when they got home. I said, you don't have to tell anybody, you know? hide your passport in a strong box. <laughs> but I had to explain all that to them. You know, you think fucking musicians, you know, <laughs> when are they going to learn? You know, do as you're told and just follow me, you know. So when we came back from the club tour in 
Mallorca, Jimi Hendrix was doing Savile Theatre shows. And as luck would have it, we got on a support. Chaz liked the band, wanted to manage them. And that was the big breakthrough. Uh, so the band joined up with Chaz's management team. I was still retained a small percentage. But uh, our first gig abroad was a tour of America with Jimi Hendrix. The tour manager got ill on the second week of the tour, got ill and had to go to England for medical treatment. And somebody gave me a, a briefcase, <laughs> a, sh a schedule and a Beretta. <laughs> a Beretta, they said, you need to carry this for the insurance. And so I had a, and I was uh, licensed to carry it concealed, which is the big thing, it seems. I could carry it inside my coat. Uh, I, did, I never carried it at all. I put it in the bottom of the briefcase. I never looked at it again. I took the magazine out. And so I was tour manager for Jimi Hendrix. And that was, that's an entirely different story and full of interesting and never-ending delights and aggravation. And uh, that was my launch, you know, into the fire of major tour America, which was very different to what happens today. There was no articulated lorries. There was no extra security. There was no anything. The soft machine, the heir apparent, and Jimi Hendrix on a 54-day tour in 52 days. So what year are we there, Dave? 1968. A good time to be out there playing as well. I mean, Hendrix was, uh, became, you know, more popular in the UK before he did in the States, didn't he? Yeah, he broke in the UK. Chaz had the idea and knew what he was doing. And then he was fed back into America. Unfortunately, Jimmy and Chaz, Jimmy had, you know, big production ideas. And Chaz was fairly basic. He was fairly animals production simple play the song you know and record it and they fell out and it's a real shame because Chaz really cared for Jimmy and really knew what Jimmy required Jimmy on the other hand was an idiot by and large he'd signed several contracts with various uh, bad people in America in early days trying to um, trying to record trying to get into a studio and that came up to bite him at the end of the day Mike Jeffries I found him very interesting, very educational, but he, was, he wasn't very musical. He didn't really care about the musician. And Jimmy was pushed from pillar to post with me as his tour manager. Unfortunately, I was learning the game and it was very bad management, very bad record company connection. And I, 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 I thought, I learned then that this is not how I thought it should happen. This is not how... I thought it would be. And the idea that Jimi Hendrix died, God bless him, with $5,000 in his bank account is the name of the game. You know, the record companies, the management, they just took his money. He used to ask me what happened to the money. And I, I'd tell him which banks I put it into on behalf of the management, but that I didn't have, you know, great control. I had a lot of money. There was a lot of money in the briefcase with the Beretta in the bottom. And... Um, you know, I did that for uh, 18 months or thereabouts, at which point the heir apparent uh, wanted to go back to England. And uh, Henry had been busted in Canada for marijuana possession. Uh, <laughs> I kept telling him, wet the towel and put it down at the bottom of the door, Henry, you stupid bugger. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, he didn't. And um, 
So we got back got back to London with uh, the heir apparent, who, you know, had had a bit of a run, had a bit of a run, but uh, Henry had left, and the guitar players who who came after him were not as great, and so um, that was the story. I from there, I met a geezer who wanted to have a management company, and he turned out to be a con artist. But anyway, it was interesting, and he put up you know a small very small sum and i found brinsley schwartz at that time and brinsley schwartz uh you know i advertised for a band with their own gear and van because i thought that would be essential <laughs> and they lied to me <laughs> they didn't own either and they had another manager who <laughs> was an optician from maidstone <laughs> so that was you know interesting but we launched by getting them to play the Fillmore east with Van Morrison and Quicksilver Messenger Service and flew 150 journalists from England over for the day. There was all kinds of disasters. The plane, which was an Aer Lingus charter, uh, crashed at Shannon. Well, it didn't crash, but it, it landed in foam because all its hydraulics had fallen out over the Irish Sea. Uh, and, you know, the liggers on the plane, the press and liggers, of course, had drunk themselves and smoked themselves to oblivion. By the time they got to Shannon, Aer Lingus's method of dealing with this was to open the bar. And so the whole thing became a menagerie. Luckily, I was in America, but the band were denied US visas by the American emigration. So I had to fly them in a small plane over the border from Canada without any visas. And uh, the guitar player who'd never been up in a small plane, Brinsley Schwartz, lost all his hearing. He didn't recover it for about four days, at which point he'd had to play four shows at the Fillmore East. So he was just doing it by looking at the bass player to find out which bit of the song he was in. And uh, that was chaos. But I did manage to get a deal with United Artists uh, for some decent income. And the group then became the very big forerunners of what became known as pub rock. But in reality, it wasn't pub rock. It was real music as against the progressive kind of high heeled shoes and funny haircuts and lame shirts. Of, and, you know, there was a load of bands of that ilk of that period who the major record companies were sponsoring. And they were all crap. They're all absolutely, if you listen to them now, there's hardly one of them that you can get past, you know, the first tune that you shagged your first girlfriend to. But aside from that, you couldn't, you know, bear to listen to that garbage. Way Back Then is part of Moments That Rock, where we dig deep into the archives, dust them down and deliver them. More archive interviews next week. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. 
I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.